you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. What comes to your mind when you think of an abandoned place? For most of us, the term conjures up images of long forgotten mining towns. Places with ramshackle buildings left to battle an ever enveloping natural surroundings. Or perhaps other ghostly markers from the boom and bust eras of gold rush or logging industries. Towns built up only to fade away remnants left in small, out-of-the-way places that most people will never see. But the reason for the abandonment of most places is typically very clear. Resources running dry, a change in industry, or maybe even a catastrophe like fire or landslide that drives people away. There are, however, cases of mass exodus brought on by things that are much more difficult to explain. At the end of the 1940s, the quaint and prosperous cannery town of Portlock, Alaska, was abruptly and hastily abandoned, after holding out for decades as strange happenings and horrifying discoveries kept building a bizarre tension around the village. Some believed the grounds were haunted, others that a monster was shifting amongst the woods. No one knows for sure what drove the residents of Portlock away, but most of its people settled in nearby villages and refused to ever step foot back there again. The forces that lurk amongst the coastline and woods of the small, abandoned Alaskan community, still hiding creatures and dark forces not of this world. Hello, I'm Amber A. And I'm Andrew McKay. And you're listening to Into the Portal, your gateway to the bazaar. Welcome back, everybody. How are we doing today? Yeah, yeah. What's happening, everyone? I hope everyone's having a very uh, jolly and bright December. Yes, As indeed. jolly as it could be. That's right. And uh, we're We started waiting. early. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. We, we started early ourselves with the Christmas movies and joy. We haven't actually put our tree up yet. We're no. going to go pick it up tomorrow. Yeah. And we haven't got any snow, really, other than one weird little small dump back in november right and to make up for the lack of snow we just devoured like an entire bin of christmas cookies that was meant for more like you know four to five plus (laughs) people and ever and i were like you know what christmas cookies we're going for it we're We're just going your mom texted us the other day and was like what are you guys doing with those christmas cookies i could hear it in the background like 
um, uh, we're eating them. <laughs> They're we almost are. gone. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Anyway, you yeah. guys, you might have caught that actually on our Facebook page. I think we posted a picture of that. We did indeed. Yeah. Well, today we are going to the far north, not to Santa's workshop, but to somewhere a little bit colder and more sinister, perhaps. Much more sinister, for and sure. This particular episode is going to be centered around the small town of Portlock, Alaska. However, uh, the phenomena associated and attached to the stories we're going to tell today are kind of go across the state. I yeah. would say it kind of breathes into what we might call the Alaskan Triangle. Possibly. But yeah. we wanted to credit Aaron Bloom, hey? Yeah, for this one. definitely. Longtime patron, uh, pat- or sorry, yeah, Patreon supporter. He's just had amazing ideas over the, the years now that he's been supporting us. Uh, so this is a, an idea uh, that he had. So uh, shout out to Aaron Bloom. Totally. Yeah. He really inspired us with our Australian Big Cats episode, among so many others. I can't even count them. But he's a gem anyways. Shout out to Aaron there. Hell yeah. So yeah, we wanted to touch off just, uh, you know, given the, the, the basics here, we think of Alaska as kind of this vast wilderness, hey? And yeah. it's kind of our weird uh, Northern American brother, hey, just sitting on top of BC. Totally separate from the rest of the continental United States, right? Bizarre. Which is so strange. And then, uh, yeah. yeah, right there next to some of our little uh, yeah, provinces and territories up in the north. And then also bordering Russia, which is actually kind of significant as well. Edge I of the world. Edge but of the it's, world. it's interesting because this is kind of, it feels like it's the last truly wild territory of the USA. Yeah. And it is the most sparsely populated. So mm-hmm. it it does have that reputation for being a place endowed with this, this feeling of vast emptiness and uh, a lot of strange happenings as well. For me, it almost mirrors a lot of the same... <sighs> psychological responses that we kind of discussed when we were talking about Siberia and in our last episode with Rasputin and where he grew up. Right. Just this vast beauty, but so much like, you know, oh, it's just the the roughness of the environment, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Like, it's just such a harsh, the harshness of it all. Unforgiving. Unforgiving. There's the word. There's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. And it does run the gambit of bizarre activity. And because of this, it has often been referred to as an Alaskan triangle. From UFO sightings, abductions, disappearances, and other strange phenomena. Hmm. Of course, we've got multiple iterations of strange creature sightings encounters haunted places and a lot more here yeah it's it's interesting like this is just one of those hot zones i would call it one of few that kind of encompasses the gambit like i just listed off there yeah it's uh it really is a world of its own however interestingly the place we are talking about specifically today of portlock is outside of this infamous triangle just just a hair just outside just yeah so it's uh <laughs> it's interesting because in a sense when i looked at this on the map and you can obviously just look it up yourself on google maps quite easily and you look at it and it's a, a peninsula and it's very much defined by its separation from mainland or continental north america yeah, or alaska definitely. and in my mind really speaks to this sense of isolation yeah even beyond that like imagine if you're bordering this territory that's known as uh, a centerpiece of, of a strange activity it would almost feel even more ominous to leave it maybe i don't know yeah that's a good point i never really thought about <laughs> yeah. that way yeah 
it might come across as rather like a straightforward story, but as we read into it, it becomes as something entirely else, hey, Andrew? Yeah, so, like, yeah, totally. That's well said. Like, at a glance, when I first started looking into this, it just seemed like this sort of, well, I mean, there is a, one particular creature that we are going to get into, so that I, I really, like, locked onto that. <laughs> Irony portlock. But <laughs> as you dig into it, there's so much more going on, and it's so much darker than I expected. So that's what I love about this, especially heading into the holiday season where everything's so cheery and bright. So Into the Portal is going to bring a little bit more of the, the darkness, as we like to do. But <laughs> like we've described, southern Alaska, uh, located on the Kenai Peninsula, extremely isolated, tiny remote area on the southern coast of the state. So, but you know, northwest of Anchorage, however. So extremely isolated not like anchorage you can't get there by you know you can get there on land but it's extremely tough mostly it's float plane and boat to mm-hmm. actually access this place established as a cannery community and did really really well the main focus of it was being salmon when they first uh, started up their operations there fresh salmon what uh, what better way to uh, mm. to live in alaska just canning salmon oh yeah <laughs> So the place itself, it's actually changed names uh, once throughout its history, but it was originally named after this guy, Nathaniel Portlock, who was a sailor on Discovery and Resolution, a couple of famous ships now. He was a master's mate and mm-hmm. ended up taking refuge in the uh, in the harbor of Portlock off of the Kenai Peninsula during one of, uh, one of those voyages and ended up being named after him there. Tiny bit of history, <laughs> not yeah. super, super detailed, but essentially the point of this is to say that no one had settled this area of Portlock until the late 1780s. And the community, once it was there, it thrived. It did extremely well and the population grew because the cannery business did so well. So it was a mix of indigenous people, uh, you know, Americans, American settlers. There was Russian, uh, people of Russian descent there as well, uh, as well and, and likely indigenous Russians also like Siberian uh, people of Siberian descent and different indigenous groups throughout there. But uh, the population really did grow, not to a massive, massive bustling city or anything. Um, But there was other professions as well. Ones you would expect in Alaska, for sure, like professional hunters and trappers. The turn of the century was this classic time, you know, this rugged, steely eyed mountain man of Alaska is what I'm picturing when I when I think of these settlements and these early types of people living in these places that are so isolated. I mean, could you imagine settling a place anywhere, let alone in the 1780s in a place like Portlock, Alaska? I mean, you can only get there by boat. Planes aren't a thing. It's, uh, you know, you're wow. you are isolated. That is the definition. You can't get out. Boat, boat or overland expedition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and putting your life uh, at risk for those overland expeditions to do that. But As we did cover in our Franklin series, which, yeah. again, this is a similar era, right? This is the time of colonial col- colonization, sorry, yeah. that was poor phrasing. Yeah, that's interesting that it did thrive and it was established so early and then we don't really see a lot of the modern stories, I guess you would call them, or tales or or accounts right. of what we are really discussing, which is these these things of high strangeness yes. resulting in violence, disappearances, and other encounters. Too. So these these exactly these bizarre events, the early I mean, they started very early on, long before the town was abandoned after the war in the late nineteen forties. But it's been said that the early settlers were driven away, like Amber said, by horrifying supernatural creatures, possibly unexplained evil evil spirits among other things, and the town remained active right up until this very abrupt exodus, right before the end of the decade, 
uh, heading into the 50s, with most of these residents moving into nearby villages down the coast. So they didn't flee the state or anything like that, but they did leave very, very quickly. And we're going to get into the details because things were left in, in the houses. It's not like things were very pa packed up meticulously, which is very interesting. So all that's left there now are some kind of, you know, random pieces of equipment. There's an old mine tunnel, things like that left there, you know, rusted out cannery equipment, that sort of thing. It is the quintessential abandoned ghost town now of Portlock, Alaska. So we're going to get into that, starting off with uh, some bizarre stuff. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, starting off in the 1900s, turn of the century. Here. Turn of the century. And it began with one particular cannery because clearly salmon was the end industry of the day. So around 1900, we get an American firm coming in and they ended up building a cannery. And again, this was kind of run by a conglomeration of the native Inuit people as well as uh, Russians. And uh, it was by all accounts, very quaint, tidy. Mm -hmm. It was beautiful and um, picturesque by all means like you know you, totally. you get those uh alaskan cruise imagery in your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, and, yeah. and by all means it thrived and things were good it wasn't until about five years later when we get the first reports and this apparently okay so this was strange allegedly so the story goes all of the workers left their jobs at the cannery due to something mysterious quote-unquote bothering the camp it seemed to die down which is interesting it was almost like a flare-up is kind of what i'm picturing in my head yeah and then the workers actually did return the next season and though we did have one version hey that kind of said that the americans and the russians were a little bit more okay with returning and then the native yeah a few different indigenous groups in on the north coast and they were not cool with it but like we'll get into further down, this was something that everyone experienced. It wasn't just just indigenous peoples and chalked up to chalked up to fantasy or folklore and things like that. But that was the story, yeah, like you said, off for this first mm -hmm. they had to shut down the cannery. They, they didn't did. have enough workers to keep operating. They did. And this was actually noted by a, a cannery supervisor. So we do have documentation of this. And it was, by all accounts, <laughs> evacuated because of something in the forest. Yeah. And it took about a year for them to kind of get things turned around again, up and running. And that, to me, is kind of speaks to... That's a whole season. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm thinking now, like, obviously, with that coronavirus and COVID and the shutdowns and, like, you know, like, the 90-day lockdowns and things like that, even how much that impacts how severe it a, would be. a corporation or an industry. And the thing is, too, it's important to note, there hasn't, like, we haven't noted attacks yet. Like, definitely there there obviously would have been throughout history, like, with Indigenous groups, like, leading up, you know, through hundreds of years before with creatures in the forest and stuff like that. But this is, like, I'm picturing almost like the, the, the movie The Witch or something where it's, like, there's just this presence in the woods. And it's that is enough right off the bat to make people want to leave and have these people that know the area leave their work job like mm -hmm. that's pretty spooky yeah so it was right around the same time that hunters and trappers and members of the community started to go missing so it escalated far beyond just this presence in the woods so simple things you know, hunters heading out on a routine day trip or maybe an overnight trip to places they were used to, to kind of their, you know, their usual haunts, right? Never to return. This was often chalked up as, you know, it's a rugged landscape. So who's to say? Maybe someone slipped and fell. You know, maybe there was a bear attack. That's definitely a thing that happens. Who knows? But it 
escalated further and further and reports of missing persons as well as bizarre sightings would occur over the next few years that would really make people think twice about going outside after dark and definitely about going to their job at the cannery as well. Massive creatures as well as tiny little creatures. Okay, so we're not just talking massive Sasquatch-like bipedal monsters. There were small versions of that scene as well, and even some outright bizarre entities, shall we say, that are really tough to identify that we'll get into in a sec. But needless to say, regardless, there was definitely something extremely horrifying for these residents brewing in the surrounding woods, or maybe it was always there and they had just sort of moved into this area. They established a cannery in the wrong spot. Yeah, they'd stirred something up, I think. And the cannery as a site of contention kind of seems obvious to me just because it would have been the most prominent thing encroaching into the territory or the wilderness yeah. or whatever you want to call it of mm -hmm. whatever was going on. Because like we'll get into, there was like, there's a myriad of creatures that could yes. be responsible. It's so fun how you are yeah, talking about the size differences because I actually came across, we didn't do too much research into this one in particular but the idea of trolls actually existing oh. <laughs> and the, yeah. the inuit version of that and how they're smaller creatures and they right. also have giants in their mythologies too it's a rich 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 history of folklore right so there's all sorts of things and maybe it's not just one thing responsible right multiple culprits potentially and just multiple scary terrifying creatures for sure some more ethereal than others shall we say but all of them to be concerned about i guess is how i would put it and this this is something that continued, right? So it wasn't, it was in this community, in the surrounding areas where these types of things kept on happening, like sightings about with bipedal monstrous like things, like you've said, like dogman like creatures, maybe, maybe even almost Wendigo type spirit entities. The Wahila even comes up in the folklore of the North, obviously, and definitely fits the bill of something that would be a Merc and some hunters not allowing them to return from their trip. Mm -hmm. But despite all of this, the town was still established. So it wasn't like this was happening to the degree where they were already spooked enough to not even set up the town like they did at the end of the 40s. So town's established, a post office is put up, which is kind of, you know, that's the flagship of like, okay, this is a place now. You can send mail to this place yeah. <laughs> now. <laughs> but even then, it was rumored that there was an evil spirit that was kind of haunting. I, the, there was a different word used. I'm trying to remember. It's almost like they described it in this one article. I was just sort of like enveloping the village, the whole area just had this sort of saturated feeling of something haunting the area. A nearby mining camp of Chrome was another place which is now abandoned just like Portlock that had these sort of very eerie vibes as well. So the whole place is kind of like you said right off the top. Set, yeah, like there's there's an energy there that just isn't overwhelmingly happy feeling. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah. It's a breeding ground for negative oh. strange entities, I guess I would say. And energies, perhaps, too. And Perhaps it's both of these things going on is kind of <laughs> this, this line I have here. Like, maybe there is a creature in the woods, restless spirit that's also associated with this. Maybe there's just some sort of, like, shifting happening with the landscape and things aren't happy. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. The, la the land isn't happy. Some, well, some, someone's not happy. <laughs> if you look at the stats and the numbers and the amount of people that have disappeared, like per capita, as far as like population numbers and things like that in Alaska, it's like it, it's off the charts compared yeah. to every other uh, state in the U.S. And you have to wonder if all these people have disappeared in Alaska 
clearly something still remains like are are these the restless spirits that we're talking about right because are they able to even leave or do they even know they're dead and, <laughs> yeah and again yeah like the supernatural element plays into it but at, at the very least like at the very beginning i i think it was kind of like a mix of skepticism from yeah. the settler side and then the the classic kind of like haunting warnings from the indigenous people and yeah no i i agree i think you know, totally. There would have been some sort of mixing of like folklore and like early stories of the settlers, like learning about the area and then being afraid of the, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a great segue actually getting yeah. into this next section because the easiest explanation was a massive creature and a very specific one because there were these stories from the local indigenous peoples and we'll name them specifically in a minute about a creature that we all know and love very much the same figure as the Yeti Bigfoot Sasquatch like monster, mm-hmm. you know, over eight feet tall, massive bipedal enigma that can rip trees out of the ground. This one, of course, was particularly malevolent, shall we say. Go back and listen to our violent Sasquatch episode from our series on Sasquatch to get a little taste of just other encounters and stories similar to this. Mm -hmm. We actually never touched on Alaska in that series talking about violent Sasquatch. And it was funny because when we were doing the research for this, uh, in the initial p- preliminary scourings and the idea that there was um, one instance, and I have no idea where this has gone, but there was a mention in a documentary, and forgive me everybody, I can't remember if it was National Geographic, but they were discussing how there was an actual body found, like a skeleton or something. And I was <laughs> yeah. like kind of shocked that we never really came across that when we were doing the research for right. our Sasquatch series. And to me, I kind of had to chuckle because I was like, wow, okay, is this one of those ridiculous absurdities yes. that, you know <laughs> what I mean? Just pretty obviously fake. Right. But yeah, anyways. I'll uh, tell you something that isn't fake though. I, well, I, I, I actually, before I close off your thought on that, it's like, yeah, I think there's a reason we didn't stumble on that mm-hmm. maybe because it was, it strikes me as more of the um, Minnesota Iceman yeah. vibe to it or yeah, something like that. Yeah, more like the traveling show type right. thing. Yeah. You know, that is funny too and, and, the idea going back to the idea that there was a a gap a huge rift between the indigenous people's knowledge of the area and then these people moving in and to this day like i was looking in the american folklore it's like the journal of american folklore archives and they had a four page article on alaskan far northern mythologies and folklore and right off the bat they said they were like you know we have sourced this from a handful of authenticated like you know like legitimate respected peer-reviewed researchers and scholars that have actually gone up there and like we talked about in the franklin episode even like it's really hard to get those perspectives because way back in those early days people didn't take the time to get their get their knowledge and record it so the people that did actually do that like their their accounts are so valuable and oh absolutely and and mm -hmm. we actually have a snippet of that in this episode one of the oldest surviving members from this community of portlock that is uh, uh, an indigenous woman from the area and holds on to those stories so she's kind of like the beacon of tradition in the area now actually i don't <laughs> i should have looked into it if she's actually still alive today like to date as we record today but anyway we'll get into that i digress coming back to the creature itself right around the same time in the 20s when people started to attribute the disappearances to this massive beast known as the Nantanak 
and I love I love this term, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I tried to research the phonetic pronunciation. It's that's how it's spelled, Nantanak with the Q at the end, which is awesome. Very similar to like the Idrak in Inuit mm-hmm. mythology and these types of creatures. Although this one is not a shapeshifter, it is very much a Sasquatch-like creature. 18-inch footprints were found right around the same time as well, and continued to be found throughout the decades that this was happening. So it made sense that they were going to be blaming the Nantanak outright, but. At the same time, there were some other very strange things happening. One of the groups that found a set of these tracks was a group of hunters out uh, looking for moose. They were following a trail of moose and discovered (laughs) human-like tracks that measured 18 inches, some a little over 18 inches in length. And as they closed in on this group of moose that they were tracking, they realized that there was another set that was actually following in pursuit. And it gets a little bit grisly because they discovered an area where it had been all matted down and there were signs of a struggle. And this thing had taken down a moose on its own and in a very extremely violent way and left these massive man-like footprints yeah. that basically went straight up into the mist of the... Uh, of, of this super, super steep cliff face up into the mountains, just basically going back into un, unattainable terrain to be followed almost even, is how it reads to me. That's classic. It, it, it reads very Yeti-like. Abominable snowman. Yeah. Oh yeah, classic yeah. for sure. And the fact that there were these footprints, uh, as opposed to like, you know, because clearly what else could take down a moose? A pack of wolves would be my first thought. Yeah. And if there are no tracks of wolves around and there's no evidence of that, like, you know, they have a very specific way of going about a kill. Totally. Like, think of it this way. Even when you describe, like, a Sasquatch-like creature as eight feet plus, Mm -hmm. which is, to me, on the smaller side, even, when we think about these types of creatures, Mm -hmm, like, a moose with its... Moose are huge. I mean, I don't know Mm -hmm. how many of our listeners have seen a moose in person. Like, we we live in Canada. We've seen them off the side of the the highway driving and stuff. They're... (laughs) freaking huge yeah, they are. so to like to take something down solo like you'd have to be massive over 10 feet yeah for me like in my mind thinking yeah. to like and wrestle it down hulk hogan style and like well, for deal with it 18 inches in your footprint that's like literally a foot and a half like, yeah i feel I like so. i feel like that might even be modest well it's pretty closely reminiscent to other foot tracks that we've come across in our yeah no that's true mm-hmm. that's true yeah i will say this as well though if as if sort of this wasn't unsettling enough to just know the confirmation that this type of creature is living right outside your door in the woods of portlock there were other terrifying strange things happening at the same time that people just didn't really know how to explain because the villagers were talking about how multiple people were seeing and hearing this bizarre woman in the woods as well and it wasn't clear exactly whether or not she was a spirit or real per se but she was described as dressed in all black clothes and would <laughs> allegedly appear out on the cliffs nearby cliffs above town quote unquote and scream and wail <laughs> so her intentions are strange for one and completely unknown in my mind like i couldn't find too too much more on this even though i do have a reference that's interesting later on she's very spooky very witch-like almost her dress has been oh, yeah. so long that she would have to drag it with her her face her, her excuse me her face as this super pale ghostly white but then yeah worst of all of course these banshee like screams and moans that would just echo across uh, even the dead snow like it, it should have been more dead sound but it it would echo across the village and i'm thinking to myself you know is is this associated in some way this is so so strange this comes up in multiple other articles that are talking about portlock and its abandonment which is typically like a town scared away by sasquatch oh, but yeah. there's so you much know, more to it than that 
and oh man I'm forgetting the name of this particular creature or spirit if you want to call it that that one about the uh it's not the otter yeah well we're uh, gonna get into that okay yeah so we got sure. that coming up later Definitely. on because okay, that to me speaks to that and also kind of reminds me of a lot of like Japanese like folklore and yep. it also speaks to like the idea of like mermaid type folklore too <laughs> you want to chalk anything else into the, oh, at the kitchen anything, everything but the kitchen sink oh, let's do it mess up oh mess up no sorry guys but yeah no that definitely kind of oof, that's it's strange spooky and that to me so she was never responsible for any deaths in not exactly she just was spooking people well that's the thing it's like my question is like was she a victim herself of mm-hmm. such a creature was she some sort of a, a a spirit of an indigenous woman perhaps that's maybe warning warning the villagers about about what's happening or something or maybe some sort of other entity that's that is very much like the Nantanak trying to drive people away. And it's it's like multiple, it's like a big team effort of spirits of the land trying to get people to bugger off because they're not supposed to be there. Yeah. I don't know exactly they're why. Like, I don't know how it's associated. Well, we will get into this just when we get into more so the creatures and things like that. But there is this origin story of a, a race of beings known as Adlets. And mm. the story of that reminds me of the mother of these creatures. So perhaps Ooh. that kind of ties into it and her spirit is remaining in the Alaskan area. Okay. Anyways, before we get into all of the crazy crazy, <laughs> let's get into more of the stories because this is sure. interesting here. This w- occurred in the 20s, so we're moving up a couple of decades now. And there was a man by the name of Albert Petka who had a fatal encounter with what might be called the, the, the creature that you were describing yes, above. The, the Nantanak, yes. And he, according to him, he was just, he was walking with his dogs out in the wilderness and he ended up receiving out of nowhere, just like a massive fatal blow to the chest by something that he described as extremely massive, dark haired, monstrous something that he couldn't identify and right. he survived the initial attack only to Very describe briefly. it before he ended up perishing unfortunately right. but he couldn't say where it came from it basically appeared in front of him the fact that he would describe it as kind of like an unknown sort of thing he wouldn't be, oh yeah it was a bear that came out of nowhere yeah this sounds you like some I mean? this <laughs> sounds like a club or like a <laughs> yeah. or like like yeah like what kind of a sasquatch just shows up and just punches a guy right in the chest like i guess that i don't would, know i mean well we will come into another encounter in the 30s where a man was actually bludgeoned to death over the head true and so again it's like are these things using instruments is there maybe he's grabbing a boulder like you know what i mean or like yeah because i don't think wood is very well i guess there are technically woods in alaska there's a lot of uh Sure, you grab a, grab a big old stick and it's smack them over. It's not like the tundra, over. tundra, like, you know, like in the Northwest Territory. No, no, like no, that. no. I mean, logging was another industry I forgot to mention off the top, too. But this poor Petka guy, he, he obviously didn't survive. There were other reports in this decade, too, of a little bit less concrete things yeah. that could point to, like, you know, actual paranormal phenomena. But we do have a lot of, like, prospectors and hunters, people that generally know their way about in the wilderness, frequently going missing to the point where it almost, like, it's commonplace. Yeah. And to me, I would start to get scared because I'm thinking, okay, they're literally just picking us off one by one. Yeah. When you're alone, you're vulnerable, and that's probably when something's going to happen. Totally. Most of the time, though, there was either no evidence at all, so no one would ever be found, or there was just, you know, just no evidence of foul play. Yeah, which is so just inexplicable, which in my mind is even freakier. It's like, 
and and, and all of it's back it's all strange and like they didn't have the stats to point to back then obviously no but like no. we were looking at uh things like you know missing persons in alaska and the alaska triangle and all kinds of things like that for this mm-hmm. episode and the stats now are bizarre i don't have the numbers right in front of me for this exact thing you just mentioned but states where people are doing very similar things like montana colorado you're out in the back country hiking doing these types of things nowhere near the same amount of missing people no And I do have my fair share of skepticism because I know these types of areas that are so extreme in their climate, right? It's not like you're going around in continental America, right? Like you are in continental America, but you're up north in a totally different realm, you could say. And it does... (laughs) I like that phrasing. It does remind me of... I used to love this movie, uh, Into the Wild. And it followed that young writer that ends up abandoning his life. He donates all of his belongings to charity, I believe. And then he decides to embark on this, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, this Eats journey. mushroom or whatever. Well, yeah. And then he ends up in Alaska and he decides to spend some time, like, you know, he's just penniless. And then he ends up eating the mushrooms. And then that was his mm. demise. But it, to me, I would imagine there was a lot of people where that happened. Right? Yeah. And there was a lot of people that if you're going to a place like Alaska, you probably have a mindset that you are wanting to disappear, maybe. I feel like for a lot of people. I mean, I wonder if we have listeners in Alaska. Hit us up if you are based there. That would be really cool. Or if you've visited frequently. Mm -hmm. We got uh, our Yukon. Oh, Jan. Yes. Jan. Yeah, up in the Yukon. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder. That's obviously a very similar area, but... There, the same. The there, same. there was something much more insidious, though, that I kind of cut you off from that you were just about to get into because it wasn't just people not coming home. No. And there was this really freaky story that we came across that, oof, okay, so this is this is morbid. If you have any littles listening in, I would probably get them to avert their ear holes. <laughs> <laughs> Well said. (laughs) (laughs) But there's actually been stories about bodies being found. And there was one in particular where there was a group of bodies of prospectors. And they had been ripped apart limb from limb. It's freaky, man. This This may be a conflation with a later story. But that's just the thing about this. Is that we don't... There's been... there there, There is just so many reports about people missing. And about being murdered. Smashed. Ripped apart. We don't know necessarily what to attribute what to, but it's all bad. Thank you for the clarification there, Andrew. Yeah, you are right. We do have this actually a little bit further on in the notes as well. And I believe we do have a year associated with it. We do, specifically. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I just wanted to bring that up quickly just because this does speak to the idea that it's not just disappearances. Yeah. And that's important. Uh, This this speaks to something, some things or something or whatever, unknowns out in the out in the bush and it's not just like it's not to me that kind of attack doesn't speak to just being territorial it's like this is like a vicious assault of warning genuine anger yeah and i think in my mind obviously the timeline works out as far as when this town was abandoned because i i would believe that in the first half of the 20th century it was like balls to the wall as far as like industry in the north and like what you could make of yourself and like I said, it was like one of these last frontiers. And it still is considered that to a large degree. We still have people like prospecting and mining for gold up there all the time. And anyways, yeah. So we have a lot more to get into. But before we do, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. 
Do you feel there's something in life that is getting in the way of your happiness or overall life goals? Perhaps it's time to try BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com is a professional online counseling service that assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist from the comfort of your home, office, or wherever you are. BetterHelp is committed to you from the get-go, from finding a great therapeutic match to making it easy and free to change counselors if need be. BetterHelp.com is available on multiple platforms and across the globe, so you have the help you need wherever you find yourself. Best of all, BetterHelp.com is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, with financial aid available for those who qualify. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com portal. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Into the portal listeners get 10% off your first month using discount code PORTAL, spelled P-O-R-T-A-L. Again, that's betterhelp.com, H-E-L-P dot com slash portal. And we are back. All right. Well, before we dive into the decade of the 30s, the second to last decade of this town, we wanted to give a quick shout out to Ashley yeah, Marlow. Totally. What's up? Yeah. She joined us on Patreon just recently and mm-hmm. we're super happy to have her. She's a longtime listener and a good friend of the show. And yeah. She knitted us toques last year. It was <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. Knitting by Marlow <laughs> or knitting by Ashley Marlow. I can't you remember. remember. What was the full name? Oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, you should look we her up. We can figure that out. We'll figure it out and post on Facebook or something. We just really appreciate everyone that's decided to make that plunge and all the people out there that are so supportive it's amazing it really it warms our hearts and yeah. keeps us inspired and we say it all the time but it's true I and, really, and, and 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 it really does go a long way like it a, a buck a month or you know five bucks and we have different tiers with different things it doesn't seem seem like a lot but it really does like go a long way with like what we do with the show huge it, we've been able to do so so much because of patreon oh my goodness everything um, from we're sitting um, here with new mic stands that we desperately needed yeah. because our the booms that we had for <laughs> our uh for our mics going across the table like literally broke in half and we were the jimmy metal. rigging yeah, yeah the metal like bent and like broke <laughs> uh and oh my gosh there's so many things that wow. we have cats a, a cat that has chewed a few aux cords and we've had to rush out and and that's gone to some stuff like it's just helped so much it uh, goes into so many different ways and even this is the first episode that we're actually recording on brand new software and I'm actually really excited and it's just going to level up the show because there's so much more opportunity to uh just take it to that next level and be a little bit more professional and that's what we want to do with this and we're just really happy that people believe in us and they want to join us and support us and so thank you we are so thankful so we really 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 wanted just to say that and we want to say too that we're really excited we've got a couple of planned releases coming up for the holiday season yes and those are going to be patreon exclusive so got a lot of fun stuff coming for you guys and definitely we just appreciate everyone and even if you're not a Patreon, all of our like, listeners, no, of all course, of our listeners, you guys amazing. are amazing, amazing. The like and the interaction we get, it's it's unbelievable. It's literally what keeps me going because there's lots of other things in life that suck sometimes, <laughs> and I can always come back to the show even when it's a point of stress too because it's a labor of love and it's mm-hmm. because of you guys. It's a labor of love. So, yeah, you ready to get into the 1930s? Okay, let's so, do this. Let's do it. 
Because like Andrew conveniently mentioned before the break, logging was actually another main industry in the area. <laughs> and we are actually going to have our first body associated with the logging industry as opposed to the cannery, right? Yes. It was 1931 when the body of one Andrew Camlock was found and supposedly what happened was he was out on a shift logging yes and was alone while he was finishing up for the day <laughs> making a final cut Ooh, yeah <laughs> reminds me of the film industry <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. but he never returned home and his wife got pretty concerned and sent out a little party to look for him and he was found bludgeoned yeah. with a piece of wood that was actually way too large for one man to wield. Right. So it was very confusing as, as to what had actually caused this. And a local historian, this is cool, we have this quote here from him, and he had this to say, <clears throat> quote, a logger was out working and something or someone hit him over the head with a huge piece of logging equipment, something that one man couldn't have lifted. When they found his body, there was blood on the equipment, and there was no way that one person could have done it. He was a good 10 feet from the logging equipment, so it's not as if he slipped, fell, and hit his head. It looked more like someone had picked it up and bonked him over the head. So it wasn't a log. It was a piece of logging equipment. And I did read another version where it was unclear. That was just what this particular historian uh, grabbed onto for the story. Well, I usually gravitate to the locals, so I'll take his word for it. Either way, bludgeoned over the head with something hundreds of pounds that could not have been picked up and uh, you'd have to take multiple men and pick it up in like this big like knocking down a door type image. It's like, I think you would have noticed that, Camluck. So yeah, no, something massive, something well, massive. Well, and nothing seemed to add up. So there was a formal investigation because of the strange circumstances and the sheer just kind of confusion around like why this would have happened to him. There didn't really seem to be any motivation behind the murder. And so there was no one ever charged. There was no murderer ever found. Right. We tried to dig into Camluck and... It was kind of like vague records. It's kind of hard. We actually yeah. did sign up for Ancestry. So that's another thing that our patrons have helped us with. Yes. I forgot to mention that. That's oh going to be gosh. huge for the show. Massive. That's going to be so cool. And so we started to dig in and we found a couple of conflicting records. There wasn't anyone directly with the spelling that we had come across in our research so no. i was i wasn't gonna like jump the gun or like you know what I mean? right. like a jump jump now, to conclusions a, a jump to conclusions matt <laughs> another reference of that in our show but yeah. <laughs> i will say though it's not exactly easy to no, records from the 1930s are spotty a lot of the time depending on where you're looking we're talking about alaska too and that's and also again it's also an extremely remote community in alaska people didn't necessarily like last a, a super long time all the time like i'm sure there was some transient population working mm -hmm. at the cannery or whatever right no, things yeah. like things like that but again yeah i this was just a little side note. The only thing that I could find, it wasn't a 1930s, but it was another Andrew K, another mm -hmm. Andrew Cam. It's, I believe it was a slightly different spelling though. So it was like, it, it was, it wasn't the same guy, but this was a, a guy who passed away in 1981. Okay. So much, so, much later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't even know. I just thought that was just kind of funny. It's like, at, at first I was like, oh, was this like his son? Was this, was this like the Andrew Camlock Jr.? And then I was like, no, hmm, that's too bad. But yeah, I did come across a few different not cam locks. Like there were some with the C, some without the yes, C. There was yes. cam licks. Yeah. There was uh <laughs> I was gonna say something really bad there. I'm not gonna say that. <laughs> I wish everyone could have seen Amber's face <laughs> catching herself right there. She literally put her hand over her mouth <laughs> and her her eyes almost bulged out of her head. 
<laughs> Anyways, the, the imagery's there. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so poor Camlet can't actually be uh, corroborated, but that was a really interesting story. And so, uh, like, once again, people, ought, because it couldn't be corroborated, it was attribu- attributed to the Nantanak. Because what else could it have been, right? Exactly. And this is a good segue, too, because we're heading into the 1940s when things got hit their peak. Let's say that things got really, really dark. The tormenting of the town had continued over the decades. And the 1940s, obviously, the height of the Second World War, things were already a little bit strange. Once, obviously, the U.S. entered, I don't really know, actually, the history, really. of We didn't get a ton on that of what things were like for Alaskans, I guess. I mean, it's still pretty pretty on the edge of the world and, and isolated. They had yeah. their own problems to deal with in Portlock, that's for sure. Because right around the same time at the height of the war, bodies started to turn up, even more of them than we were talking about before. It wasn't just the hunters disappearing. There were corpses that were turning up in rivers and streams and in inexplicable places. These are people that fell victim to something that was often attributed as a bear attack, but most of the people in the village didn't really believe that. Closer to town, there were also reports in the 1940s of trees throughout the area that were completely ripped out of the ground and flipped upside down with their roots facing up into the air. And some of these trees were so large that it would have taken a full-grown lumberjack like Andrew Camlock we mentioned earlier uh, to actually cut it down with an axe would have taken him several minutes to actually cut it down, let alone rip it right out of the ground and flip it over. So that just kind of gives you an idea of how thick this would be like it's not a tree you could wrap wrap your hand around or even mm-hmm. maybe with two hands wrap wrap your hand around the trunk yeah so that's insane other, amount of strength to other worldly that. powers yeah like, and that is actually another thing that's commonly associated with sasquatch and bigfoot and the idea that they would be either marking territory it's it's often seen as like an aggressive thing or a territorial thing again right so if <laughs> it's almost like a toddler when they like take something and like rip a piece of broccoli off their plate and like smash it on the ground they're like man and like that's how you read it (laughs) kind of or it's like almost like a a really uh release of energy like violent anger anger filled no i get that part Mm -hmm. you know what it it's trying to make a statement it's definitely trying to make a statement to me it strikes me almost more as confirming that whatever is doing this is isn't necessarily 100 percent there you know what i mean it's not it's not an animal it's it's something that's doing symbolic things to try to scare to try to 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 send a message and then in various unique circumstances there's people that are turning up dead it almost reminds me of like (laughs) i always i always hearken back to things we've recently covered but it almost Mm -hmm. reminds me of like the abilities of like say the demon valak or something like that where it's like a lot of it's just spooky doesn't really do anything to you but then in certain situations these things have the ability to do things to you and the reason is because they're not all there it's one foot in one foot out hmm. is sort of the vibe to me with this scare yeah. tactic stuff i, I don't and know perhaps plays on the vulnerabilities of the individual too yeah mm-hmm. either way whatever it is it was obviously freaking people out and this we're, we're coming up to the ab- abandonment of, of portlock i guess we should maybe mention at this time we already said that the alternate name was port chatham Oh, we actually haven't mentioned that We haven't that mentioned yet. that. We just yeah. have gone with Portlock because we didn't want to flip back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it's actually pretty hilarious. There's articles you'll find where they'll reference Portlock and then on the flip side reference Port Chatham as if it's a different place where similar events happened. It's the same place. <laughs> uh, just so everyone knows. It's happening everywhere. 
But <laughs> right before the end of the decade, the town was extremely hastily abandoned. And I say hastily because they, it's not like they just left all their clothes and everything there, but they did not meticulously pack. There were houses with things left in it, obviously equipment left at the cannery, like things like that. There was yeah. definitely things of value left behind. And this was a place that should have been thriving still. Hmm. Like the salmon hadn't gone away. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there was no other real reason, but... In trying to find a reason beyond the paranormal, I pulled up some archives. So this is a diary entry from this guy named August Bushman, who was one of the early cannery operators. And he has various other jobs around in the area too. But he basically just spoke to how the genesis of the many canneries in the area really brought bounty to the region. His testimony was talking about the speed at which they proliferated and people moved there and seemingly everything was hunky-dory. And this was from 1949 that the actual diary entry was. Now, was he situated in Portlock exactly when he wrote this? Maybe not, but it didn't speak to anything outright horrifying happening. So I just, I wanted to, I wanted to note that because I don't know, Hmm. Clearly, some people were either completely oblivious. It's like this is a little bubble of horrors that's happening here at Portlock, and people are, are completely oblivious to it outside of Portlock. It's like people that ran away when they abandoned it didn't go that far, but they got out of whatever they were running away from. Yeah, so it's a very specific area. That so this guy was either unaware of it or didn't want to reference it or whatever. Well, maybe, perhaps, if he is like a company man or perhaps a skeptic himself, like we maybe. Uh, have encountered quite a bit. Perhaps he thought of the now. No, but they, that is interesting. Just the point here that he's talking about the proliferation of these canneries. So it's, again, not a dying industry. Yeah. It does make me wonder. Perhaps maybe there was some competition that moved into the area. Perhaps there were higher wages being offered at a different competitor's cannery. And it was just natural for the ebb and flow, right? There was a lot of ghost towns, a lot of, you know, the gold rush and ghost towns and all the, the, the ebbs and flows of people, right? And people follow resources. And in an area as scarce of resources as a place like Alaska, yeah. you'd imagine... When the going gets really hard, people just, yeah, definitely just pack up and leave and go to a different area. Right. And maybe you can just <laughs> be very mundane and explain it away like that, but it doesn't really lend itself to that. And no. we do have testimony from people from their memories, right, of the stories they were I told. can't wait to get to that. It's really, really interesting. But I'm ready to jump into some of this stuff from the 1970s, though, because this really gets back into some of the darkness. I'm ready to jump to that if you are. Yeah. No, because there was an interesting story I came across in the Daily News as an Anchorage-based newspaper. And this particular story or article was talking about a retired school teacher who had taught in Port Chatham or Port Ock during World War II. So essentially, she remembers cannery workers. She doesn't actually get specific as to whether they were indigenous, if they were of Russian descent, or if they were American. American, But she does say that there were these workers that went in the mountains on a hunting trip. They were hunting doll sheep and bear, and they never ended up returned. There were search parties that found no trace. Then there had been rumors of a mutilated body that had been torn and dismembered. And the rumors said that they didn't resemble any wounds that looked like it was from a bear or any other known animal attack, such as a wolf pack, because that would be pretty obvious too. But it was in such a gruesome fashion that obviously like it spawned a lot of talk amongst the people. And the only thing that corroborated this legend if you want to call it that was the bodies themselves and eventually what happened or as the story goes they had been swept down the mountain by the rains and they had been found in the lagoon that was located near the village yeah so this would have occurred uh, a post hate like you know like a, a quite a while after yeah i would imagine in the uh the spring melt yes and that would be quite the discovery 
Mm-hmm. Very Dyatlov Pass-esque, except even, well, less frozen, <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess. The same article did actually touch on, again, the mention uh, the story we mentioned off the top of the episode, the, uh, the tracks and the story of the moose kill and how it was pretty inexplicable what could have caused that other than something that was bipedal and man-like because it had these tracks that yeah. looked man-slash-ape-like, monstrous in size, though they were over 18 inches yeah. in length. So it was very clear that this uh, this moose had been the victim of an extreme, extremely vicious attack that ended in its death. There was an actual, there was another weird story of a goat hunter from 1968 who did claim to have been chased by an unknown creature while he was hunting in the area. Yeah. And he couldn't actually say what it was. So again, this is adding to the weirdness. Is it a ape-like creature is it a dog-like creature for me that is such a vague account because we have a few different things that we're going to talk about like we already mentioned the ablets i kind of gave that one away but (laughs) (laughs) we've also got the tornets the bushmen but anyways i'm going to have myself here but this was actually interesting there was another one from the 70s too that i just wanted to briefly mention here and this was actually a party of three hunters that had taken shelter during a storm and they had essentially been stalked by what they claimed was something walking around their tent on two feet Hmm. something and they weren't very specific on what kind of sounds they heard or the length or like how if they were actually fearing for their lives or if they you know what i mean like did any exploring or found any tracks we actually never had any other details but this was actually kind of cool because it reminded me of something that we actually had someone share in the strange room on facebook the other day it was a guy named Phil, and he lives in Germany, but he was actually in Scandinavia when he had this incredibly frightening encounter with what he would refer to as, like, kind of like a dog man, like, wolf-like werewolf type creature. Yeah, dog man-like creature. Dog man-like say. creature. He actually was on another podcast at paranormal addiction, I think it was called. It's a YouTube channel, but he shared his story on there, and I listened to it, and it was, again, it was a siege, right? It was over the course of multiple nights. Okay. And he was terrified, man. Like, he was, it, he described it as, like, uh, post, uh, oh, what's it called when you, you're, you're PTSD? Like, yeah, PTSD. That's exactly it. And, yeah, so it was supposedly some sort of thing that was stalking him while he was vacationing in the wilderness at a cabin all by himself. <laughs> and the story ends with him basically beelining it from the cabin where he was taking refuge to his car immediately, starting the car and just ripping out of there like, right. as fast as he could. Well, he made uh, it. He survived. He that's made always, it. Uh, that's always good. But he also, he said he really regretted that instance because before then, he was wanting something like that to happen to him much like i always say i want something weird like that to happen to me yeah because now that it's happened to him he's like it's just like the it's like pandora's box has been opened as far as the weirdness and what's possible and some place that used to be something that he would go to for rest and relaxation and for inspiration has become something of like you know it's dodgy for him now scary he's, he's fearful yeah, yeah exactly to this day so that was interesting and i just wanted to mention that one too it's funny how a lot of these um well that, that that's obviously extremely modern but 68 1973 very sort of vague encounters with these these massive bipedal creatures but these are obviously all like decades and decades after after the town's abandoned these are like corroborations of of this entity or these creatures still existing in the area per se but they're 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 not they're not stories before people left, which I find interesting because obviously it's like I don't I don't know like are these people that have just 
wandered onto the periphery of the same energy that the peoples of Portlock were driven driven away by. Because people that go to Portlock as, as a visit, take some pictures of the abandoned stuff that's still there, you're not going to get chased away right mm-hmm. away. Like, I, I wonder how long you would have to stay there to actually, like, reactivate or re-piss off or whatever. <laughs> that's there (laughs) you know what i'm saying i know so it's like either they're just active and then they get stirred up but then they're always just there so it's like the amount of activity obviously just increases the chance encounters that you're going to have uh instance with one of these things whether it's fatal or not (laughs) and one of the and like yeah i know that's yeah that's a good way to put it like people definitely that left didn't go back right away you know what i mean like they they refused to it was one of those things like forbidden ground type of vibes and one of the surviving members of the community and i think she was in homer this was the oldest member of village of portlock who was born in the 1930s and left when it was abandoned when she was a young girl in the 1940s her name is uh, melania helen kell and one of the very last people to tell about uh, the story of of portlock and it's referenced in in the article a lot of articles on her as port chatham but we're going to keep calling it Portlock, Alaska. And she basically corroborates exactly why it was abandoned and shunned and people would never return there. She says that when she was a young girl, her family abruptly moved from Portlock, leaving her house, every single board in its frame behind, all like furniture left behind, and a very frightening situation for her. She wasn't just Indigenous. Her parents, John and Helen, her last name uh, was Romanov. Um, she must have changed her. Hell, she must have got married. Must have got married, yeah. So she was interviewed back in 2009, and uh, it was an article featured in the Homer Tribune. This was uh, one of the nearby towns. So she's known as an elder in the area, and people have gone to her for her stories in the region for decades. And she was born in 1934 in Portlock, one of the only people to give insight into this paranormal demise of the village. So this is a quote from her to kind of kick things off. We left our houses and the school and started all new here. There was plentiful land here for gardening and people, and my parents built a house on the beach. Over a long period of time, a quote, Nantanak, Nantanuk is another pronunciation of it, or big, hairy, bipedal monster, was reportedly terrorizing the villagers. So she corroborates this. She says outright that there was this Sasquatch-like creatures stalking the village and said that many of the residents refused to venture into the surrounding forests outright, not even just at night, and that over time, they couldn't handle it anymore. They abandoned their homes and the village and the school and moved up the coast to Port Graham and other places. The only person who remained was the postmaster, and even he left 1950. The following year, it was was closed. But I just thought that her... I don't know, like, it's, it's just kind of... It's interesting to have an older person like that. I mean, obviously she has an indigenous background, but just to outright say, like, just so, just so blatantly that over a long period of time, the Nantanak was terrorizing villagers. I mean, just, there's no, no beating around the bush. Like, that's just, that's just straight up what she said. I yeah. mean, what do you make of that? No, I, I, well, I, again, right, you gotta go to the locals, and if that's coming from the ground, you definitely have to look at that with more than just, like, a grain of salt, I know, but, like, again, I, I'm, I'm, I take her for her word, but I think, too, at the same time, it might be an oversimplification. Like, is she talking about one creature? Is she talking about a a tribe? Is she talking about a family? Like, you know, and and does she get into more of the specifics as far as appearance? Like, Yeah. No, well, that's just that she does have some other things to say about the ghostly apparition, but I saved that for 
some of the theories that we're going to get into in a sec. Interesting. Okay. But specifically, I just wanted to mention the first thing that was the Nantanak because that's kind of the main creature. But that made it that kicked us off for the search of being like, okay, well, if it's not this, like, what else could it be? Because these people didn't just leave because they were scared of the dark. No. There was something scaring them away. Well, it's not even really like we're just like dismissing that it is the Nantanak because quite clearly like this is probably the centerpiece of the focus of the research. Yeah. But we did want to, as soon as you start to dive into Alaskan folklore and things like that, you start to get a whole slew of really cool, interesting creatures. So we wanted to present some of those to you guys as well. Totally. But we did have some stats like you, you pulled up some stuff that was uh, specific to the Nantanak, right? Yes, the Nantanek. So specifically, we've already said this a million times, Sasquatch-like creature, 8 to 12 feet tall, 18 plus, uh, eighteen inch plus footprints in the range, dark in color, uh, very, very similar in some ways to the marked hominins that we've re- referenced in other episodes before, which are in some cases much more violent than sort of the quote-unquote uh, classic Sasquatch, Yeti, and these types of characters, uh, or characters, figures, I guess. The marked hominins are also known to be in Siberia. Obviously, Alaska, we're right here, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is a gateway. This is a bridging point to some of these similar similar bipedal creatures in Alaska or in Siberia. Some of them even have been said to wear clothes. So that, I don't even know. Like, I'm, I'm just tossing that out there. We'll talk about the tornets in a <laughs> second. <laughs> that, 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 hey, the almas and some <coughs> creatures in, in Siberia are like a, like a tweak of, they're almost like more relic hominid is the vibe. Or just a more, a quote unquote, primitive race. I, yes. I don't mean to use that word as if I, you know what I mean? But that, a lot of the times that notion is assigned to these types of things. And it does right. kind of speak to very quintessential cultural narrative of, of one race kind of like positioning themselves over top of another or if you want to call them races or peoples or tribes or groups or whatever i don't know i don't know i think race makes sense especially if we're getting into things like i mean we even tossed in uh, halfway through the episode there you mentioned trolls Tro- um, yeah that did come up there's actually. a lot of dif- different that was in uh, that american folklore article i was looking at from yeah. jstor races and species of paranormal creatures i guess <laughs> the plethora of them hiding in the alaskan woods like the overarching question regardless like before before we get into specific just monsters is this idea of people disappearing in alaska and it, it's not just like the alaskan triangle like we're going to mention that but we're not getting into that in depth today no. <laughs> like that's its own episode in episode. and of itself i'm glad you kind of phrased phrased the uh, introduction to this the way you did a second ago there with like different sizes and different like shapes and forms and stuff because the the alaskan bush people are uh, are kind of an interesting interesting figure here Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stories of these Alaskan bushmen or tornets, uh, as they're commonly called, as I initially Com- referred to them. Commonly called. <laughs> yeah. These have been told since, like, like I don't even know, since the dawn of time, if you want to get really cheesy <laughs> with it. But anyways, yeah, so this kind of speaks to, like I said, uh, many other cultural narratives that talk about this awkward juxtapositioning between a more quote-unquote primitive race that lives amongst a superior one. We see this a lot of time in colonial narratives and eventually leading to like all sorts of conflict, rifes, clashes. So in the beginning, as the story goes, the Inuit and the Tornets lived quite peacefully amongst each other in villages and actually shared common hunting grounds. However, according to the Journal of American Folklore, the Tornets uh, were actually described as a race of giant, sorry, not giant, but they had great strength and stature. Yeah, they were, so they, they were, were bigger t- than average. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. okay. Sorry, I had that. I had that slightly confused. I, I for some reason I thought they were they were super short, but they're just more like 
No. Almost like Homo erectus or something. They're like, uh, or not that. They're just more like relic hominid to me. Kind of. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If you, yeah, exactly. If you want to refer to them that way. But I think uh, genetically they shared the same gotcha. uh, number of chromosomes as these people. Okay. But yeah, so they were described as awkward and a little bit less bright. Because of this, they were ultimately driven out, if you want to refer to it that way, or they were pushed to the peripheries. However, there were all sorts of hostile contests that would occur, even though most of this was, I think, the result of jealousy and inadequate, or not inadequate, but unequal distribution of resources. And the idea that the Tornets were very jealous of the hunting technology that the Inuit had in particular, that their canoes were were uh, something that the Tornets had not actually come into making on their own. Couldn't master it. Okay, okay, exactly. sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so this did result in some violence and clashes and... Eventually, it was said that the Bushmen fled the lands, never to be seen again. However, uh, since that time, there have actually been, like like we said, there's been a lot of disappearances and a lot of Inuit hunters disappearing too. So the Inuit in themselves often ascribe these disappearances to the Bushmen and the idea that these clashes and this is a quote here from the anchorage daily news i thought it was kind of fun it's like many stories have come out of the bush of hunters disappearing later found dead and mangled or never seen again apparently hunters and the tornets no longer peacefully shared common hunting grounds (laughs) so the idea that they are still there but they're kind of they're hidden in the peripheries of society and uh yeah it seems like these are often referenced in daily life even in anchorage and in alaska at large (laughs) okay there was uh yeah, one guy, he was describing his, like, youthful encounter with one, I think he was hunting with his father, and the story goes that they, out of nowhere, there was this awful stench, and his dad, the guy he described, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, and I forgot to write it down, but he basically said that his dad stopped dead in his tracks and just froze as soon as they, and the kid was confused he was like what's going on and his dad told him it was a bear but the kid was used to hunting with his dad and had never smelled a bear that smelled like that (laughs) and they just got the heck out of there as fast as they could so they never actually had a violent encounter but years later he kind of thinks about that story and thinks like what could have been you know what i mean yeah pretty freaky man so like i mean yeah like my question is then are these that's cool like that's interesting it's almost like yeah this is like a tribe of of these tornets that are still managing relics, to stay, yeah. uh, that are relics in a way, that uh, are maybe pushed to the fringes of the Kenai Peninsula. And, Perhaps. Yeah. And, and that's maybe what people are running into in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this Interesting. could definitely, because it does kind of speak to, again, it's a hominid race, right? So it's a bipedal group of creatures or beings or whatever. Yeah. Or if you want to refer to them that way, I feel like that's almost insulting if we're talking about just literally another group of people. I don't think I would uh, worry about uh, insulting the Tornets too much. I feel bad. I just don't want to insult anyone that, anyway, anyway. <laughs> that's just Amber, classic just shush, me. Shush. But it comes back <laughs> to the same idea when we were, when we did our huge long Dogman series and we talked about how explorers, early explorers came back describing these vivid accounts of cr- people with dog-like heads and we were like, well, are they describing half dog, half humans, <laughs> or are they describing people wearing headdresses and they just sure. don't actually understand so cultural bias is definitely a huge huge thing that is largely inescapable even if you want to which is where i'm finding myself right now <laughs> yep yep classic amber thing to yep for sure <laughs> these things strike me as almost like little mini almas like the almas from siberia or something like that 
because they're not because they're not mini well they almost is massive so i guess mini is it's like regular size rudy these things are they're regular sized forest (laughs) folk they're not the eight foot tall plus no they are described as muscular and 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 very strong and big in stature it's almost like uh, oh i can't and big in stature okay see because this is the thing like the the thing we mentioned off the top or relatively off the top of miniature sasquatch like creatures that's that was really hard to actually corroborate like that was just loosely mentioned mm-hmm. in these these store these articles about what's seen at at port what was seen in the woods around portlock i got confused i'm gonna say that you guys like i totally got confused with that with with these guys with the tornets okay and because we didn't actually have any stories specific to the to to, to the miniature the miniature ones. I think that's something we're going to have to come back to maybe. Yeah. But it isn't even that pertinent to the story because they weren't involved in like the direct deaths. No. We're, we, we'll come we're back to that. We're not describing. It's almost like that. you could think of them as like the Menahune of the north. That's totally what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so cute. Anyways, uh, there was another one that I thought was like really cool that I wanted to mention. And this is another like sort of like uh, human, like... Mm. I don't know if you can call it human. It's half human. It's another peripheral type figure, right? Because it's literally the story goes that it was pushed the fringes of the society. But anyways, this one is called the Adlet. And it resembles something of a savage dog human hybrid. Also has been I don't know, ascribe characteristics similar to the werewolf as far as its physiology. Anyways, it's known in these very far northern indigenous mythologies. And some folklorists actually think that there could be a connection, like this could be a very early iteration of what would kind of come into later Europe in the medieval era of like a like uh, reverse werewolf. werewolf yeah like that's coming from North reverse America rather flow. than coming from Europe to North America it's well. a reverse bearing land bridge migration that's what you're trying to say kind okay. of yeah exactly and these adlets are described as having the lower part of the body like that of a dog while the upper part is like that of a man they are ferocious they're and encounters historically between them and indigenous Inuit peoples um always seem to terminate in fierce battle which generally ends in the death of the outlet unfortunately Hmm. and that was just a little tidbit i pulled again from the journal of american folklore i really like the origin story for these creatures because they're thought to have come from a, a natural union between an inuit woman and a dog <clears throat> but it wasn't just any dog, okay? We're talking demon dog. We're talking a red dog here, which is pretty cool. So the legend tells of this unholy union, which came about from one woman who decided to venture probably a little bit farther than she should have. And she was out picking berries one day when she came across a large red dog, which by all accounts was actually a demon. And she was seduced by this demon dog, which resulted in the birth of 10 babies in a litter half human and half canine beings so the grandfather of sorry not the grandfather yeah the grandfather of the litter i guess so the father of the daughter did take pity on her and decided to arrange to basically like leave them on an island so they were taken away from the mainland and he arranged to give them meat on on the shores of the mainland every week so he would go and hunt for them and protect them because they were savage and they couldn't really be a part of 
uh, regular Inuit right. society. And so what happened was this arrangement meant that the father, who was the demon dog, actually had to swim to shore every week to retrieve the meat for his family. <clears throat> so he would swim across the freezing Arctic waters and he would actually dangle a sack around his neck and then the f grandfather would fill it with meat and he would, uh, he would go back and return and swim back to his family. So supposedly one day the grandfather changed his mind and he decided to fill the sacks that he normally filled with meat with rocks instead causing the demon dog father to sink and drown on his return. So the mother ended up having to raise the young on her own until they reached near adulthood. And the story goes that five of the Adelet offspring wanted to venture to the mainland and fend for themselves and explore the world. And she let them. And the story goes that they, <laughs> they spread and they created more Adelet and uh, supposedly spread across the Bering Land Bridge into Russia and across Europe. And then that's where we get sort of like the first iterations of uh, these werewolves, which again, I really, it's hard. You can't find dates. This is oral tradition. So it's really hard to really date where this originally sprung up in far Northern indigenous folklore. Right. But it is an interesting kind of connection. Hey, I've never actually come across that. So no, what, that's, what do you make of it? I think that's so cool. The yeah. idea of it potentially originally, yeah, the, the concept, uh, like these creatures in this, this, yeah, this origin story of these monsters, if if you will, being seen by peoples ac across the across the pond. That's mm -hmm. very very fascinating to me, and yeah. it is interesting too that there's similar version of the of these creatures that exists in the folklore of uh, the peoples of Greenland as well, which is kind of like the hopping a little yeah. bit as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we're thinking up north, and to that point as well, going back to our uh, series on ancient explorers and, and being able to cross, we talked about St. Brendan and his voyage was further north. So even not thinking about land bridges and things like that, like, I don't know, just this sort of interesting, the idea of... come from the other side, though. Uh, that's true. We're talking about the far, far west and then it becomes the east. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but but just the concept of traveling in the far north, I yeah. guess. Like these, these, these types of things could... Yeah, yeah proliferate actually, their way. It's interesting that you mentioned Greenland because these do come up in the canon of Greenland folklore yes. and tradition. Yes. However, they're given a different name and I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. You blacked it out here. It's like... I did. Anyways. <laughs> it's redacted. It's not for, redacted. For pronunciation purposes, it's redacted. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I thought it was really cool though because... Again, this does speak to like this monstrous human, right? Yeah. And you can go down a lot of different lines with this. And we have in the past, right? With a lot of episodes we've covered and, and how, what if, yeah. Like what if it's these poor people, <laughs> for lack of a better word, pushed to the fringes of the, the most bitter and harshest like type of society, right? As even as far as like the climate and everything. And then they're existing in these like, I, I picture them almost being like, what was that episode? Was it an X-Files episode where it was basically like a dog? It was a dog girl or something or it was a wolf girl or, and she was like totally feral. Or am I thinking of something that's actually true? I think a I am. wolf girl that was totally feral in X-Files. Maybe it was an X-Files. Could have been something else. You're totally guys. throwing me for a loop here. <laughs> a la loop guru, if you a will. Here. You're throwing me for that there. A little uh, werewolf re reference for our yeah. uh, for our crazy ideas we're throwing out here. So we've basically referenced dogmen, mm -hmm. Nantanak, Sasquatch. Not really dogmen in particular, but well, uh, it are, like different versions Splitting hairs here. Mm -hmm. they're, yeah. they're dogmen. Let's... let's the adlets? Well, it's very... They're huge human dog hybrids true right okay so we've gone we've got like an ape-like thing with with the uh 
with a Nantanak. <laughs> Thank you. Like, we've, like I just said. And uh, <laughs> so basically your idea, so the reason you wanted to mention the adlets is because they would. They're violent. They're violent. They are, they are bipedal. They are known and they are attributed by many indigenous people in the area when hunters go missing. Gotcha. They attribute it to the adlet, which I thought was pretty significant for us to mention. Absolutely. So, so far we've got the uh, the, the obvious explanation of the Nantanak smacking people over the head or dragging them into the bush and then leaving the corpses in the lagoon. We've got the the uh, the little the little, uh, little comparatively <laughs> to the Sasquatch, the Alaskan bush people. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Then we've got the Adlets as yeah. a potential. The Tornets. The so Tornets. The that's tornets what I was mentioning the there. Adlets. Mm-hmm. We're getting into another one here that's even more metaphysical, you you would say. I mean, definitely more than the Tornets because those are apparently a race of uh, that are still living in the woods, which is absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, relic humans, that's, that's just good. I just go flying down the rabbit hole any time anyone mentions anything like that. Like Amber's rolling her eyes here at me right now because no, she can see she can fun. see the look on my face. Uh, but there's also this creature known as the Otter Man, such an such a strange, strange figure. Kushtaka. Uh, the, the Kushtaka. Yes. And this is a shape-shifting spirit-like entity of uh, the Tinglet peoples. So these are indigenous peoples of the Pacific North Coast and one of the groups that overlaps in this area of Portlock on the Kenai Peninsula that we've been talking about today. They, this, uh, let me pronounce this again, the Kushtaka. So this roughly translates to the Otterman. And is said to mostly appear as this very, exactly as the name describes, an otter-human hybrid. But it is capable of transforming into various other things as well, including children and even a wailing woman. So there you go. Hmm. Maybe that is some there sort of go, a connection yeah. to what I was referencing earlier. That's what right? I was trying to think of earlier, yeah. So it's found throughout the mythologies and oral traditions of these people. Uh, their name too, the Tinglet, Tling, Tlingit, sorry, T-L-I-N. It's so hard to pronounce. Kind of like a K. Yeah, peoples of the tides is how their name loosely translates to. Obviously, this is a coastal coastal community, people living off the fish and stuff like that. So the Otter Man was seen as this entity that would often mess with fishermen. It wasn't necessarily a figure in the woods, but it definitely could be. It was a shapeshifter capable of assuming human form most of the time, but then otter form, other animals, things like this. Known to be especially cruel creatures. That's, that, I guess, is the kicker that makes sense here because if this spirit is, this malevolent spirit is lurking in the woods outside Portlock, almost maybe even like beckoning um, hunters to their death or very mm-hmm. like making them feel comfortable that they can go out on 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 their regular expeditions and stuff only to kind of trick them um, because that's one thing it was known to do with sailors it was it was said to delight them with its like uh, i don't even know it was just like the way it it had like a mesmerizing uh, characteristic to it almost creature. like uh, the sirens of the sea exactly. or mermaids or something exactly that would lead these poor uh, indigenous sailors to their deaths other versions are that it's actually more of a friendly, helpful spirit and would actually save people from from freezing to death. But that definitely is not as frequently told. Okay, so I actually feel really bad because when we were going through the timeline of uh, the attacks and the certain encounters that were experienced within this community, I forgot to mention it was in the 30s and there was this really weird story from a, or sorry, not a farmer, a fisherman from the village. And he was at a, I think it was an inbound lake, if I'm not mistaken. And he was at the shores of this, it was like a fishing pond kind of thing. Sure, okay. 
in the area or a small fishing lake like you know those mountainous lakes and alpine yeah. lakes and things like that so he said that he had had a day of fishing if i'm not mistaken and he had to go back he was returning to get something and he had his shotgun on him maybe he was hunting then i'm actually i'm so sorry guys this is a very vague story but anyways the idea was that he had been mesmerized by what looked like a large hairy black furred creature and when it turned to look at him he again right he just froze and then he after about a minute or whatever a couple <laughs> moments i would imagine he ended up just booking it out of there right and he could never actually say what had stopped him from using his shotgun it was almost as if there was a otherworldly power that had kind of like descended over top of him and mm-hmm. and influenced him not to do that but again that's a kind of idea just because it was on the shores and the idea that this is a shapeshifter type creature the totally. actually that. no i'm glad you mentioned that too because i forgot to mention uh with the stories from melania and her coming from the village she actually did have a story about her grandfather being bludgeoned over the head at his boat by the beach as well on a, on a fishing really? trip hmm. so this obviously the story you just told was no uh, casualties or anything he this guy had this strange sighting seemed mesmerized like couldn't pull the trigger or didn't know why or didn't know what he was looking at we ha- we know that this is often a malevolent spirit we've got the story of cam look on the other side attributed to the nantanak bludgeoned and then melania had a story of her grandfather being being bludgeoned so they're both bipedal they're both like these hairy man-like things i feel like maybe yeah there's like there's there's a conflation between the two like that's why i wanted to mention the kushtaka as well because if you like shape this one's a shapeshifter but the nantanak strikes me not as a shapeshifter but not necessarily like a a a flesh and blood creature right Mm -hmm. kind of an interdimensional type thing something like that Hmm. something like that yeah, I'd like that. And Kushtaka, one of my, I feel like my brain's just reeling from, I think it was our Hawaiian episode that we did. And there was something that was a, a water spirit in that one. It was the shark god. Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. That's I'm thinking of. And, <laughs> and Pele. <laughs> and those spirits were like, yeah, like in that episode too, we mentioned how like the, um, uh, the kahunas would were the ones responsible for kind of like keeping them in check Mm -hmm. so like that's where my mind went with this the idea of maybe perhaps something's been that was maybe under control before people showed up and settled portlock alaska has now been let out of control because maybe there's a shaman that's been responsible for like controlling these spirits that's no longer doing so or maybe it's some form of malevolent magic or shamanism it very much reminds me of the terror the Franklin expedition, yeah. the first season with oh, that yeah. creature. 100%. Not to give that away. It's been out for a while. You guys should have seen it by now. But uh, where once that shaman dies and his spirit is no longer attached to this other spirit of the land, it now is kind of running wild. And mm-hmm. that's what the that's what this strikes me as with these creatures. It's something that is out of control. This isn't just a regular Sasquatch sighting or a regular whatever other sighting with bodies showing up in the lagoons and people vanishing. Sure, we've talked violent Sasquatch stuff, but this isn't ain't no Ape Canyon. I'd rather... Ape Canyon looks <laughs> yeah. like the Shangri-La compared to this. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, Ape Canyon with the rock throwing and all of that. It's funny you mentioned canyons. and Well, it's not really a canyon, but I'm thinking I'm going to our next creature of the night here. 
and we've talked about this in other episodes too none other than the Wahila. right and i mentioned this because there have been fatal attacks attributed especially the the origin story i believe originating from the michigan area if i'm not mistaken yes yeah michigan you, you got it i thought it was interesting just to bring up because of the adlets as like a, a far northern dog human hybrid thing and not to say that the Wahila is a dog human hybrid it's often described as like a dire wolf or yeah. like a very large wolf like like oh standing on its shoulder like the shoulder four feet at least kind of yes. thing so big and white usually and these were commonly well not commonly but the first i think traditions were a little bit southern in the michigan area of these this type of creature but before we get into writing this description i actually wanted to talk about a little article i found it was actually written by a guy named hammerson peters on mysteriesofcanada.com and he's actually written a slew of books he's like a a canadian folklore uh, writer and he's pretty cool so i would definitely check out his work and he had actually written an article talking about the great white wolf of Canada, the Wahila. And he described these circumstances. He starts off like digging deep, which I really appreciate. I like going to the origins of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to bog down this episode too, too much, but he goes into talking about uh, IOA peoples. And uh, this was in the Montana region and their legendary Shunka Wararkin, which was a hyena-like canine that was said to roam the American prairies. And uh, this was kind of the first sort of like connection between... <laughs> Um, indigenous folklore and then what was later found it was actually the specimen uh, located at henry lake which is also in montana here and lauren coleman actually mentioned it in his cryptozoology a to z book as well but this is kind of like a well i'm getting into a lot of nitty-gritty stuff here but basically the shunka warkin kind of loosely do the dotted lines to the Wahila here. So this Wahila was actually given the name by none other than the father of cryptozoology. Uh, Ivan T. Sanderson, Sanderson, baby. I was going to say Bernhardt. Oh my gosh, I'm losing it. <laughs> yeah, you really are losing it. <laughs> but Ivan T. Sanderson, or actually Lauren Coleman, but <laughs> we'll get into that in a second. Mm. But this is known for a ri- like basically being one possible explanation, not the definitive explanation, but one possible de- explanation for the weirdness going on in the Northwest Territories of Canada and this particular valley. So it's not a canyon, it's a valley. <laughs> it's known as the Headless Valley, but it's also known as the Nahini Valley located in Nahini National Park. Okay. And we're going to save that whole chestnut for another episode because yeah. it was actually suggested by us uh, from someone on Facebook and I really, really want to cover it as a full episode. Totally. So Ivan T. Sanderson described this first in a paper written back in the 70s. It was called The Dire Wolf and he gave it the term Wahila because he was inspired by this Michigan creature. But... <laughs> It actually gets even better (laughs) if you're like me and you just love petty drama. But uh, anyways, uh, there was a 2018 tweet from Lauren Coleman and he actually ended up taking credit for alerting Sanderson to this native Michigan term for this white wolf creature that he says he discovered in the folklore archives of Indiana University. (laughs) So I thought it was just hilarious. It's like literally it's from 2018 and it's like a 30 plus year like 
Yeah, Just still had to, still had to tweet about <laughs> the that. Minutia. Also, real. it's pretty funny that he <laughs> found that in a university archive in Indiana. The origins are from Michigan, and the sightings uh, after after a lot of the Michigan ones are from the Northwest Territories of Canada. Far I don't away know. From anyway. Michigan. I thought it was so, kind of petty, but I was like, whatever. It's just kind of a bit of an eye roll. But isn't that funny though? Oh man, I got a little kick out of it. You the, saw me that one day. I had a twinkle in my eye. The cryptozoology like, <laughs> community. I feel like that happens a lot. Probably <laughs> even more so in the UFO community. Mm-hmm. That's it. That don't even want to touch that with a 50 million light year pole when I see some of that stuff on Twitter. True. But the thing is like, what do you think? Could this be a possible explanation for some of the deaths and disappearances? Like, do you think there could be a Wahila like creature? I feel like that's more likely than a lot of the stuff we've talked about so far. Like the Tornets and the Atlas? Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, obviously those strike me as inherently more paranormal. This is, this is more cryptozoological. Crypt- mm-hmm. cryptozoological which yeah. to me is a little bit more concrete mm-hmm. i think that especially because there is this idea that lumped in with the ottermans of the world and, and the sasquatch like creatures and stuff there's just sort of this general idea that there's so many different quote-unquote monsters in alaska that haven't been discovered yeah. i think depending on who you yeah. say that to they're going to interpret it differently mm-hmm. whether it's cryptids or interdimensional monsters and stuff to, totally okay. depending on yeah. who you talk to but i think this is maybe a real wolf a, a, a species of but something massive is- the style of the attacks that we've discussed—that's the only thing. Don't really and the trees correlate to this. The and trees being ripped out. Well, yeah. The bludgeoning, yeah. The yeah, the attacks. You don't really the, get that type of behavior from no. wolves, and you don't get the tracks like we discussed. No, that so is again, the disconnect. So again, I was like, it's, it's it's a real possibility in the sense that these things could really really be out there more so maybe than a tornado or adlet or something. But but I don't yeah. think this particular case points to that. But I did want to talk about it because I really do like uh, talking about wahilas. We didn't even really touch on Wendigos too, hey? And yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, it, that's it's more of an East Coast thing too. It I is. think it's the Wendigo, right? And, 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 yeah. mm-hmm. But there's similar creatures, definitely. They in are. West, in West Coast mythologies. But they're more so known for like being like cannibalistic and, and right. like being the trickster, right? Like again, like more so targeting children, I think. Yeah, like, like the Idirak was is, is one that's kind of like that. It's the sort of um, amalgamation of elk antlers and, you know, a human face and yada, yada, yada and mm-hmm. would lure, lure children children away from the village and stuff like that. And the idea that it looks like death, too, like that doesn't really closely match up. Actually, we need to cover that as its own episode as well. (laughs) Its own episode as well. We have done the Wendigo. No, no, the Idrak. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) sorry. Oh, my my gosh, I totally forgot. Yeah, no, (laughs) that was one of my favorite episodes. That was great. And we had uh, Adam from uh, Graveyard Tales come on and give a little uh, give a little tidbit on that episode. Yeah, that was really fun. Yeah, I don't know if I'm... um, Ah, well, the thing is, too, is like, I guess if people are seeing 18 inch footprints and that's maybe juxtaposed with like, oh, that's a big wolf footprint. Like, that's not really going to be <laughs> no. uh, reported necessarily. Right. Well, it doesn't even add up. It was like... it do- well, no, I mean, un- unless the thing is, is like we the bodies are ripped apart in a way that wasn't like a bear. wasn't like a wolf. It's like. Was that said for a dramatic effect? Well, the thing is, yeah, maybe. Maybe. I like, don't know. What, well, what do you think about it? Right. OK. A huge ape like creature ripping apart the limbs versus biting versus yeah like say like two or three wolves like yanking from end to end right right but you would get different teeth marks you would get different injury marks and yeah and woe is us because we don't actually have any of the like actual autopsy reports or anything like that so i don't think there ever were any well there would have been if not in the 30s if you believe any of this at all well i just don't (laughs) think there was any diligent autopsies being done any time before the 1970s in this extremely remote area you just end up in the ground you just end up 
happened? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only other thing we can really go back to, I did want to just, I, I left it out of the um, the quotes from uh, Mrs. Kell earlier on, the, survive, the, the lady who left Portlock, but she had a quote about the, the woman in black. So I'm going to describe Ooh. it. The lady with the long black dress. And she said, quote, her dress was so long that it, uh, it would drag as she walked and she had a very white face and would disappear back into the cliffs at night. So that was just the one tie back into the idea of is this area just outright haunted are all of these spirits just sort of being or, or spirits are all of these entities being brought forth by the fact that these grounds are just sacred and have it's been broken is like you know what i mean so it's like the then nantanak shows up and is doing some stuff this lady's out screaming on a cliff yeah there weren't sightings directly of like wahila like creatures and things like that but they are a part of the mythologies in this area and are also violent creatures that could very much be responsible for stealing these hunters having people disappear mm-hmm. i mean I, I i i don't know I mean, this does tie back into my idea of malevolent shamanism too. This idea of like, you know, this this chick saw this. Kel, she she she's corroborating this woman out on the cliffs, and but she doesn't know what this is from. Like, she didn't think this isn't a member of the community out there just wailing away. No. So my my question is like, is this a connection to yeah, like a a spell that's been a spell that's been broken? You know what I mean? Like something that's been controlled for centuries and now it's not. Or what if it's the mother of the adlets? (laughs) Or the mother of the adlets? That's the connection that you have there. Because they've all you know. Or or like I already mentioned off the top of the episode, it's like all these lost souls. Like oh my goodness, like you know, there's so many people that have gone missing over the years. Like what if this was the the torn soul of someone who just couldn't bear to to part ways with this world and or or had been the victim right if they're wearing black like that speaks to mourning right so maybe they had been the victim of someone disappearing or being murdered in some crazy way and then they end up throwing themselves off the cliff like that's a classic uh, legend classic to trope, be told for sure i could make that one up that'd be beautiful <laughs> <laughs> yeah no doubt we didn't actually get that whole thing but the the idea that there was a spectral entity on the cliffs right. like that's a pretty uh and i uh, think I think that, I mean, obviously, it's very classic. There's so much more to dig dig into as far as quote-unquote haunted Alaska. Like, this episode in and of itself has just been a breadcrumb trail off the, like, towards so many other different episodes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One of them being the Alaskan Triangle. Because if there's any way of me to try to tie all of the craziness together that we've talked about in this theories section, it's the idea that maybe multiple creatures could be at work because Mm -hmm. of the association with the Alaskan Triangle. This place of port lock is just on the fringes of it mm-hmm. and it's what, isolated by it it's isolated by it that's the thing right on the tip so it is range. still associated with it right like it, yeah isolated by it i love that phrasing so what is coming from this triangle that is then seeping its way to further towards the coast and affecting port lock mm-hmm. it's not just planes disappearing it's it's not just about what enters in it's also what can come out no, and that's yeah, the exactly. thing we've talked about in many many episodes with <laughs> interdimensional sasquatch and crazy crazy things like that amber's yeah. rolling rising again no i'm not i was remember <laughs> something from the late show we were watching earlier i was like we could just put in alaska never come here and never leave oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> right yeah it's both so we're not going to get into that in detail. <laughs> Stay tuned for a full episode on the Alaska Triangle where monsters will come back. Yeah. But the one interest piece 
1974 or the Alaska Triangle related to this was that the story of the bodies in the lagoon in 1973 was right around the same time that the interest in this Alaska Triangle really ramped up 1972. Mm, and yeah. things were, people were, were looking into the Alaska yeah. Triangle like specifically. Oh my goodness. There's that whole bog story. Hey? Yeah. So is that just a total coincidence is that just like the story of the bodies showing up maybe like just a little bit of hearsay off of the interest in the alaska triangle or is there some sort of a connection hmm. is there some sort of malevolent energy <laughs> yeah coming out of uh, various points of access throughout this triangle there's, i don't know i don't have any answers but neither do the, we the more, all i know is the more you dig into it the more weirdness comes to it with the surface yeah and and I really do want to, yeah, I want to do like basically what we did with the uh, Great Lakes Triangle. Yes. So we could do things that are in the air because there's a lot of unexplained pilot disappearances like the House Majority Leader Hale Boggs back in the 70s, like yeah. you just referenced there. Yeah. And a lot more on the ground and, and just missing persons like the 411. What oh, was yeah. that? Is that a Prime or a Netflix Alaska series or something? Yeah. Or missing 411. We never actually watched that. But we watched some of the Hunters one because that was the more convincing out of the two, right. I think. Uh, according to the people that <laughs> according to our references <laughs> the recommendations but, yeah the recommendations yeah but definitely a full episode in itself mm-hmm. absolutely well folks that that is the story of the abandoned town of uh, of portlock alaska and the monsters that drove people out and uh we really want to know what you think what creature or forces are at work in the wilderness of alaska here and what do you think was responsible for for what happened i mean it's very very easy to just kind of go to to sasquatch or, or the nantanak but it's not exactly the same so that's why we wanted to bring to, to toss a bunch of other ideas at you um that maybe you could find if you're wandering through the woods in the area so yeah hit us up i mean follow us on social media at into the portal podcast comment on our social media posts about this episode and like let us know which monsters you think i Mm -hmm. I am genuinely curious follow us on the uh the network at strange pods on instagram and uh, strange podcasts on twitter hit us up on facebook as well uh of course special thanks to our uh, patreon supporters as well as our producer stanley capazorio and all of our listeners thank you guys so much for uh for yeah downloading subscribing and sharing the show with your friends and if you Mm -hmm. haven't done that tell a friend tell somebody about into the portal and get them listening over the holidays you have anything else you want to say amber um i think i've said a lot (laughs) (laughs) i think i've said way too much too so until next time on into the portal your gateway to the bizarre This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.